0: Gosh, I, I forgot I even had that in my pack.
1: This is this is a spoiler, man.
0: Uh, if Joe flicked my ear, I'd, I'd probably conquer him in Welcome to Kafaru Cast, everyone. I've got Frank across from me, David D'Austin, my right, and uh, the great South Cox with Stalker Stick Bows to my left. South, how's it going?
2: Well, It's been better from a (laughs) health standpoint. (laughs) Yeah, my back is uh, jacked up, but it's on the repair here. So I'm at least uh, not crawling to the bathroom anymore.
0: Yeah, well, that's good. Um, Spinal. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, before I forget about that, um, we've been trying to announce some of the different... uh, We're horrible. You know, we don't take sponsors on the podcast, but kind of announce different companies that... That help us out so i guess one would be stalker stick Bows. south uh you've always been great to work with and uh, promote us and uh make a hell of a bow so i guess this podcast is brought to you uh by stalker stick Bows. uh <laughs> south what uh you, you've recently purchased a couple of companies and um you know done quite a bit i guess as far as like uh innovation and changes with with uh what you were offering to now what are some of the different things uh that have changed recently with the purchase of those companies.
2: Sure. So as if I didn't have enough going on already. So I guess it was the end of 2020, the um, first quarter of 2021, we picked up Dryad uh, dryad bows, a um, and H archery bought a new building, remodeled the building moved. And uh, so the last, you know, 12 months have been pretty insane um, from a, just you know being busy standpoint and then we integrated um some of the stuff there that we had uh, picked up from the other two companies into the stalker line and then we're working now on bringing some of the stuff that we do in stalker that weren't offered in the other two companies over in that direction as well so been a lot going on but um the primary reason that we bought out uh h A&H archery and dryad bows that they had a um they both had use of a patent they were the sole users of the ACS patent which is um if you picture a tape measure how it gets um how it's concave in profile versus a traditional um bow limb like a recurve or longbow limb they're flat in profile and uh so on both companies the the first third of the limb is flat and then the second third of the limb moving away from the riser transitions from flat to that uh concave profile then maintains that that same profile for the last third of the limb um so that that um basically you know stiffens up the limb and allows you to um uh build a thinner Narrower, lighter limb, and uh, and then also loads the limb in. You, know, you can kind of better control where it loads the limb, so you're able to get a higher efficiency limb, and uh, you know thus greater speeds for the same draw weight. And uh, so, for instance, our um, in the Stalker line, just to do kind of a apples to apples comparison. Um, the Reflex Deflex longbow limb that we offered in uh, um, our Coyote line. Uh, doing the AMO test of 28-inch draw length. And this is out of a shooting machine, so it's not, you know, one of these redneck, I drew her back and let her rip, you know, (laughs) it looks fast. (laughs) Uh, But shooting it out of a shooting machine uh, at nine grains per pound, 50-pound draw length, or draw weight, rather, we're getting uh, 182 feet per second out of our um, reflex-deflex longbow limb uh, 188 feet per second out of our static recurve limb that, and those are the two limbs that we've been offering all along. And then when we brought that ACS longbow limb over, we're now getting 192 feet per second. Oh, wow. So, you know, f- all for the same draw weight, same arrow and all that, um, significantly faster from a, sp- a speed standpoint.
0: Well, you, you mm-hmm. also, um, you, uh, w- so offering g10 as well um you just started doing that in the last year or so haven't you yeah i how's that on your tooling
2: dude i <laughs> i hate the stuff you know And that's i've been dragging my feet you know for years with it um it's it from a there's a lot of advantages of it i mean it's basically stuff is like uh, wears like iron so you can't break it you know you beat your truck with it and you wouldn't damage your riser um, so from a durability standpoint, it's really, you know, difficult to compete with from, you know, when you're comparing it to a natural material like wood. Um, but it, uh, it is really hard on the tooling. We, we use a diamond, uh, bandsaw blade for cutting with it. And then, uh, on the CNC machine, we have to run our feed and speed, you know, way lower, way slower. And, and so it takes a lot longer to cut out the, the handles with it. Um but we are offering that now in uh in you know across the board in all of our riser designs um and uh, i've got you know the black and the OD green with that and it it has been really popular unfortunately so we've been, <laughs> <laughs> been using it, it uh, a lot is it
3: more durable mm-hmm. and it's heavier i, I know that right it's yeah durable, it's
2: but... way heavier than uh so Like one of our completed bows out of, uh, you know, maybe a lighter mass wood would weigh maybe a pound and a half to, you know, pound and three quarters, whereas these uh, G10, you'd be pushing four pounds. Oh, dang. Yeah, so it's a lot heavier, and and most everybody, you know, that's used to shooting a stick bow that picks up one of these is just like their eyes bug out when they pick them up because they're just not, you know, expecting it to be so much denser in material.
0: Yeah. You could beat a grizzly to death with one. It's, it's beefy. Um, the, the thing, though is which I, they are from my experience talking with Bowyer's crappy to on, on time and tooling. Um, you, that thing will, like, when the world ends, there'll be, like, what, cockroaches? Coyotes and...
2: Uh, coyotes and G10 risers. Right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it literally takes me probably 10 times the amount of time to cut out one of these G10 risers, just bandsawing it out to put the different pieces of the handle together, and then it does a wood riser because it just cuts so slow. Wow. Um And then, you know, on the CNC, it's probably three or four times longer. So, I mean, people come, you know, or... I don't know if they complain, but they're like, Why is it cost you know another hundred and twenty five bucks for the well, for one, the material's more expensive, <laughs> shipping to get it here is more expensive, and then just the the time and the tooling and and uh it you know goes through everything way faster as far as from a wear standpoint on the tools, yeah, yeah,
0: it's uh, it's rough well. Uh, lead times, things like I know you're busy as hell. What's what's going on with that? What are what are your current lead times? Because I'm sure people are going to ask.
2: Yeah. So right now, um, we we had been running about three months, and I think we're closer to four months right now. So it's still not too bad. Um, but you know, if you're hunting back east, you could still get a a bow in before you know with time to practice before hunting season if you put it in an order. But if you're hunting, you know, out west where we're, our season's open in August and pretty tight on uh, on a new order getting it before then
0: do you have any stock bows or did you get cleaned out?
2: <clears throat> no we're actually putting out a lot of stock bows right now um and uh the stock bows you know you're not you're not sacrificing anything um if you buy a stock bow. It's not like they're lesser or anything like that. It's just you know the the specs are what they are, but they are essentially the same as our custom bows, um with the exception that um you know. You're not choosing what draw weight or what wood color or what have you.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I, um, I, I suggest a lot of guys that if the poundage is there, um, not to get too wrapped up on the the color as much because I mean, it's a tool. It's I mean, you make a beautiful bow, but I'm like, look, you want to hunt with it this season? You can't have your cake and eat it too. Just buy a stock bow and then have a backup bow and then order a custom one later. Uh, and then you have a backup bow is kind of my suggestion to guys, especially when they're pinched for time is there's nothing wrong with having a backup bow. And yeah. you can always order the the bow of your dreams later. And if the color's a little bit different, at least you have it. You can practice with it and have it for for seasons.
2: Right. And then, you know, resale value, too, is if they you know, if you put it out there on the used market, you're not taking too bad of a hit, too. So you can buy one and then upgrade, you know, down the road and, you know, you'll lose maybe a few hundred bucks or something, but it's not, you know not like a compound or (laughs) or the stock bows you make. Are they out of
3: a certain wood, like consistently or just you
2: kind of No, it's across the board a lot of times. Um, so sometimes we'll, um, you know specifically i'll go in and decide i'm going to build a stock bow and i'll build it from the ground up but a lot of times i miss weight on a set of limbs for a customer so then i'll just build a handle that complements the limb veneer. so they're all over the place with you know as far as wood species so you're and still getting
3: and... a pretty unique package it's not like it's just like something that's mass produced you're still getting something right. that's fairly unique
2: yeah yeah I, I think right now we did a run of action wood bows which are all you know the same color um, so right now on our stock bow page, we probably have six or eight bows that are look pretty much the same, but that's generally not the case. Usually they're pretty widely varied. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: So not to get off the subject of that, but we just saw your video, um, uh-huh. of the elk hunt and we've talked about the, the elk hunt some, um, that was the first time you and I had really gotten to hunt together. Uh, You're a tough little fucker. How far did you walk that last day?
2: (laughs) Well, it was somewhere close to 20 miles, yeah. Well,
0: I did 18, so I know you were well over 20. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it
2: had to have been uh, probably closer to 25 then.
0: That's what I was thinking, because people have asked me, what was it like hunting with South? I'm like, well, South's like what he seems like. I was like, but he's fucking tougher than I thought he was, because that little bastard walked a long way that day. (laughs) I, I, uh... Not to not to skip to the end. We'll go. It, that that area is, is a, a very special place. It's really unique, but it's not a gimme. We were in there twelve miles. Yeah. Um, you know, I looking back, the only thing I wish I probably would have done is held out a little longer. But the only reason, one of the, I mean, it was nice getting out of there at the same time. Right, right? and I would have felt bad everybody kind of hanging out, but we ended up killing our bulls the same day, and you were probably
2: eleven miles in. Um, well, I actually, I think we had figured it out Well, going to, we had a little bit of a, we clipped a little bit off of the the main trail. We had some, some special access there, <laughs> but I think it was 14 miles. If you were to go to the public trailhead to where we killed our bulls. Yeah. It, uh, well, it was, it was funny. So
0: we'll rewind. We had radios to check in, which you failed,
2: by the way. Right. Um, <laughs> South never checked in,
0: but the one time we turned the radio on, um, we had all went up the same way the same day, uh, on this trail, and we stopped. We had some, I think, we had some bulls bugling, and you yeah. guys went ahead, and we got into a bunch of different elk. And the one time we turned the radio on, we heard, "I hit a bull, something, something, and lost you." Yeah. Right. And so, I'm like, "Fuck, Mike, we got to go find South." So we we smoke it up to this valley. And I gotta say, South—I totally forgot who you were when I heard all the elk bugling. Cause I'm like, South's <laughs> fine. <Right>. He'll be. <laughs> we'll find him later. I was like, he's a grown man. He's got two guys with him. And so we got to a point where Mike was calling, and I went across this big valley and looped around to to drop on this, put a stock on this bull. And you ran into Mike just
2: yep. happenstance, totally happenstance, yeah.
0: So kind of go like y- your port, like what was going on at that point, what had happened, and and I think you were going to get the llamas, weren't you?
2: Yeah. So um, I-, I had killed, I-, I I had hit my bull at, geez, it was pretty early in the morning. It might have been eight o'clock in the morning. We had already been up on the other side of the ridge trying to. Uh, get on another bull that ghosted us once we, you know, of course, climb all the way up there to equal elevation and then the thing disappears on you. And uh, so then we um, dropped back down through the bottom of the canyon and, and started up the other side to go after three other bulls that were bugling. And the biggest one sounded like he was highest on the ridge. And the way the wind was coming down, we needed to work the other two first um, lest we blow them out by, you know, getting above them and they pick up our wind. So we had gotten, uh, kind of between the two, um, the, the two bulls that were lower were more to the right. And then the, the, uh, biggest sounding bull was, um, a little bit more down Canyon, but, you know, maybe just a few hundred yards and then up higher. So we kind of got between them and then started climbing up to the two smaller, what we thought were two smaller bulls, just by the, going by their voices. And I'm having a hard time getting used to this mic. You practically have to eat it. (laughs) (laughs) So make love to the mic. There you go. (laughs) So we, uh, we get up to, um, oh, probably less than 100 yards from the two lower bulls. And uh, Levi, my cameraman, was like, hey, he's coming in. And uh, so the the lower of the two bulls was starting to come down the hill kind of to our right. And uh, about that time, um, the, the uh, biggest bull up higher on the ridge— uh, and further to the left, there was bugling, and then we could start to hear start to hear uh, branches break. So he started coming down the ridge toward us, and so I um, we were you know kind of committed to the bulls on the right. So I was on a, a little bit of a finger that had formed, and and this just you know very small micro topography might have been you know ten or fifteen feet in elevation higher than the uh, the the rest of the face of the ridge and then to my left towards the the uh biggest bull there was a little bit of a dip and then it went up into another one of those little micro ridges and i uh, i didn't know you know coming down the hill if that bull um that was come the bigger one if he was going to come down on you know which side of that little micro ridge that was further to my left so i just you know decided, okay well i better go over and get on the you know to the top of that or at least near where I can see over the other side, because my uh, my caller Mitchell um, was down the hill, maybe fifty yards below us, and he had a cow elk decoy. So I uh, I dropped down through that little dip and it was starting up the other side to to where I could look over if that bull came on the backside. And then as I got towards the top there, I could see kind of over the edge, um, over the top of it, that it seemed like it was pretty thick. So I didn't think he was going to come that way. And about that time, you know, I could hear the branches breaking as he's coming down the ridge toward us. And uh, um, Levi's like, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, you know, (laughs) I can't see anything. Levi stayed where I was, um, where I had been at previously. So he had a a different perspective um, from a, a visibility standpoint of what was going on. And uh, unbeknownst to me, that bull—well, I could kind of hear him coming—but he came down um, onto the side of the ridge that Levi and I were on, and uh, and I had a giant tree about oh maybe 15 yards in front of me. And he comes down, kind of gets level with that tree, and then hooks around that tree, and he's coming dead on as he rounds that tree, headed down towards the cat that cow decoy. And uh, as soon as, uh, you know, I saw antler tines coming behind the tree, I drew my bow back so I wouldn't get caught with my pants down there. And uh, as he rounds that tree, he's head on and uh, head pretty low. So I had no frontal shot. I'd hit him right in the nose. And uh, it looked like he was going to walk right over the top of me, man. I was was brown in my drawers. And uh, then he kind of veered to his right slightly to my left which worked out well for a right-handed shooter. So I just kept, you know, kept aiming at him, aiming at him. And then, uh, just like at the last second, as he's going by me, I started to swing on him and, uh, and I caught him just as he's, you know, he kind of realizes there's something moving right next to him. And, uh, he starts to react and like do the, like, Turn toward me and look, and start to step away. And just as that happened, I I cut my shot and I, uh, and hit him. You know, looked like it's pretty good, but I think he's still kind of quartering into me somewhat. Um, and it ended up being that that way. I I got probably one lung there and liver, and uh, he barreled off down the hill, and that started a um, a long tracking job, and and uh, <laughs> and not a lot of blood on the ground, and. So I think we recovered them. Um One of our check-in times, so we decided we'd check in like every hour on the hour. I think it was it wasn't until like eleven o'clock or something that you guys caught my static on the radio. So by like noonish or so, I think that you guys were up my my way.
0: We had a we had just had a bull that one I was telling you about a minute ago coming straight in a, in a big bull. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it didn't pan out. And it was the kind of coming in and not get a shot that you, you know, suck your thumb like close. Yeah, uh-huh. So I was laying there like a like a little bitch basically. I was like, this sucks. I can't believe I didn't kill that thing. He's probably three twenty. And uh, I hear on the I'm like, holy shit, South turned his radio on. <laughs> and then that's when we got the man. We weren't that far from you. We weren't. Mm, we were working our way up uh-huh. to that canyon anyway. So I, I don't think we could have been. I don't know, three-quarters of a mile or less from you. Yeah. I mean, it didn't take very long to get up there, but I'm not – I'd like to say that I you know, wasn't going to leave a man behind. We got into that canyon, and there was elk bugling everywhere, and I'm like,
2: south will be okay, and I'm going to try to kill <laughs> this
0: elk on the other side of the canyon, and then that's when you ran into Mike. Yeah. We just happened to stay. Well,
2: yeah, it actually ended up being – so rewind a little bit there. So I think that I had called you at one of our nap times. <laughs> we, had, uh, we were getting our butts kicked on the blood trail, man. We lost blood and then uh, we started doing some open field searching and couldn't find it. And... Which is crazy looking at that shot. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. I thought it would have piled up. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. yards. That's so. what I expected. And so, you know, that feeling where you're like high as a kite, totally elated. <laughs> you just made what you thought was a, you know, instant or near instant fatal shot. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start on the blood trail, which starts out pretty decent and then it rapidly peters out. And then, uh, you know, pretty soon you're open field searching and there's all kinds of blowdowns, and, and, uh, so Which is
0: hard to figure out where an elk's gonna go in blowdown. Right. That's the problem. They zig and zag and yep. just because you think it's where they should go does not mean that's the way they go right. in blowdown, which sucks. But yeah, a hundred percent.
2: Yeah. So we we came back at one point, regrouped and it was like eleven o'clock or something like that, and decided, okay, let's just, you know, take an eat some lunch, take a nap, and then uh we'll figure out a plan afterwards and so, um, of course, I couldn't sleep, but I'm just laying there and thinking and thinking. And it's like, okay, so I, I started kind of picturing a bird's eye view of what, what it looked like where we were at. And uh, we had been on the side of the ridge and the bull dropped down into the bottom of the canyon. And the, the bottom of the canyon got to be where it's fairly flat. And the strip of timber that we were in um, petered out onto the edge of a meadow. So it didn't really leave a whole ton of country for him to hide in, and uh, so we, when everyone got up, I was like, okay, it was Levi and uh, uh, Mitchell and I, and it was like, okay, let's do this. Let's spread out, you know, close enough that we can see each other, and then let's just walk back down towards the mouth of the canyon. I said, I don't think he's gone. You know he, he can't have gone four hundred yards. I know I've got an internal body cavity hit. I know I've got vitals. this bull is dead. We just need to find him and so I didn't want to um spread out so much that we uh you know that he could have died in some of those blowdowns and we walk right past him because uh, it was pretty thick in there all that beetle kill they were piled up you know fairly high to at points you know that might be three feet high of logs that are stacked up um but I felt like that was a pretty good plan. So once, you know, we committed to that, then I felt a lot better because I had turned on my X and, uh, you know, the tracker and it kind of let it run as I was blood trail—oh, not blood trailing, but open field searching. And it looked like, you know, some drunk guy on a unicycle. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, so we, we all lined out and we hadn't gone 20 minutes and Levi's like, got him, you know, so. <laughs> By the
0: way, Levi's vision is so good, he might be able to see the future.
2: Um, <laughs> That's the
0: truth. He can, uh, you know, Dan Collins is like that. He's got vision like that, and it was funny. Uh, the first day, we were going up that, and there was that bull on the right, yep. and I'm like, I'm gonna go up and try to shoot him, and the first two times, he's like, you see him? I'm like, I see him, all right, I see him. Hey, he's right there. I'm like, yeah, I saw him, and then, like, the third time he said it, I'm like... I have no fucking idea where this bull is. And Uh. he's like, he's right there. And I'm like, I don't see him. He's like, he's right there. And I'm like, well, I obviously don't have your vision because I don't see shit, (laughs) Levi. That guy has amazing vision. Yeah, Um, he does. He does. Yeah. So when you you guys found the bull, um, Mm -hmm. Mike and I were halfway up that canyon, uh, or that whatever you want to call it, and there was a bull across from us bugling. And I'm like, Mike, just stay here and keep it making noise. I'm going to try and go kill it. And unbeknownst to me, you
2: ran into him on the trail right. coming to get the llamas. So, yeah, he, he had set up and to do a calling sequence and shortly before that we had recovered the bull. Yeah. And, uh, so I mean, completely random. He had just stopped like on the edge of the meadow and, uh, it just happened to be, you know, a hundred yards from where my bull piled up. <laughs> And so uh, Levi and Mitchell stayed behind to quarter the bull up, and then I went back the four miles to grab the llamas to get them so we wouldn't have to backpack all that meat out. So
0: I didn't know any of that. I crossed. There was a a good bull with three cows. I, I didn't know the cows were there. I circled across way up and around and down. I was right on top of that bull. At 16 yards, I can see elk but I can't get a shot and so I, I actually at one point in time my cow called he stood up and it, I mean I'm not shitting you like within 15 16 I couldn't get a shot so then they kind of meandered I, and this went on for 30 minutes and that deadfall
1: yeah. and
0: so I was between 12 8 to 12 yards out to 30 and never got a shot at this bull they finally winded me and Mike thought I shot him when he uh, came out of that bottom and crossed so I went down to Mike and Mike's like I found south and I'm like <laughs> you haven't moved. How'd you find South? He's like, well, he, f- he found me. Right. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and so you had told him where you were, you guys were good. You didn't need yep. help to keep hunting. And so Mike and I went to the end of that. I don't know how far the end of that Canyon, if it's you were at 14 miles, but we went to the end of it. And I don't know how many elk were there, but but it was a lot, all of them. Yep. I mean, so we had probably eight different bulls within 400 yards of us. And so we, he hit that one bullet I shot. Um, it was coming in on a string, and it was funny when I sh- I thought I made a bad shot. So, when it's coming in where I had originally set up, I had everything in mind where he would go, and he came in so fast, I, I was standing, and then I had to creep down, creep down, creep down. And so, uh-huh. by the time I shot, it looked like I was taking a shit,
1: uh-huh.
0: and I'm not stable at that. So, I let it rip at like probably eight yards. I thought I hit it like high back, so like top of the lung, maybe right. not, mm-hmm. and so I'm like, <laughs> it's not good, and I I look at Mike, and I'm like, I'm doing the throat cut thing, I'm like, is he down, and Mike's shaking his head, and I was like, he was, Mike's like, he's down, I'm like, oh, all right, and then I I look up the hill, and I I could hear elk, right, I knew there was more coming, Yeah. and I turn around to walk back to Mike, and I see little Mike with his head going, <laughs> shaking his head back and forth, and I'm like, that he that that three fifty bull came in with thirteen oh, cows, yeah, thirty five yeah, yards man. broadside. I had to throw my bow down. Oh. <laughs> I just like, I, I might black out, so I I threw it down. And so Mike and I, my bull ran like forty five fifty yards and probably rolled thirty down the hill. And so for the next three hours of cutting that bull up, it was a symphony of of bugles yeah. the entire time because oh, the wind was perfect coming down. Right. And, and well, kind of not necessarily down, but not up the canyon, more up yep. and down. And um, I don't know, it was, it's a special place, it was cool, so Mike and I cut the elk up, and so now mathematically I'm like, well we've got two bulls down and we're a long ways in. right? Yeah. And I, Mike and I, I, you know, we had the llama, so I probably, I don't know how much weight I had, but we took the whole elk out. We went like a half a mile, three quarters, maybe a mile. And I'm yeah. like, Mike, this sucks, let's just hang it up. And Mike's like, no, no, it's fine. Thank God in like 300 yards Mike pulled the pin. He's like let's so we hung it up but we still had 4 miles to go to get back to right. you guys. And so we had hung it up and I showed you some photos you showed me yours and I think the next morning you were we were talking about are we going to how long are we going to take to get these elk out um and I was a strong proponent I remember of let's get it out today. Right. And right. so you came up with your plan, so let's let's hear it because that became a lot of miles in a shit show, but it worked.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so we had uh how did that so we loaded <laughs> – we what did we do? The, I the, tried to block it out too. Oh yeah, yeah. We had to we had to go so we had to go up to retrieve your bowl, so the wrong direction from the trailhead. And uh, so then uh Mike and Mitchell and Levi. Grabbed. They loaded their packs up and headed to the trailhead, to the truck to drop off a load, and then um, while we retrieved your bull and then came back. So we went up four miles and came back four miles with the uh, with your bull, and then dropped you know meat there. Loaded up our uh, so we had all the llamas. They were backpacking stuff out, and uh, we had to load up camp and all the all that we could of the meat, which still left. More than what one llama could carry, <laughs> a couple llamas worth back there at camp. And then the plan was those guys were going to go back to the trailhead, drop their stuff off, turn around, and come back. And I foolishly told Levi to leave his pack there because um, I figured that we would have enough um, that that we would uh, Levi would just take my backpack when we when we all met up, and then I'd turn around. Um, Take and two uh, llamas back take, up. Yeah, take two llamas back to camp. And then wherever we met on the trail, I'd turn around the two empty llamas. Or once we you know, unloaded their stuff onto Mitchell and Mike, then I would head back to camp with two llamas. You guys would bring one llama back out to the trailhead. Well, llamas don't really care to be separated that much. So you guys... I created some extra burden there by having a llama that wasn't wanting to be cooperative, leaving the other two llamas. It's and... fucking llama. So we, <laughs> I've got like a hundred and
0: some pounds on my pack already, and so we load my rack and some meat on that llama, and he was not having it. Uh-huh. Like he was not moving. So I'm looking around, like hoping Mitchell or Levi will be like, "Oh, I'll take it," because they didn't. Anyway, they weren't taking it. So I loaded that meat on my we had a scale we waited it was like 150 I and uh, i don't know what we had four or five miles left so yeah we did a video i got to my feet i knew i could make it but i knew there was not time for breaks and happiness i'm like and i looked at mike i was like mike i'm not taking that llama can you take it he's like i got it i'm like i'm gonna smoke it out of here and i'll come back which was a lie there was no way once i got <laughs> like three four miles into this i was not doing well so we i get to the the, the trailhead and it wasn't like I was, like, you know, just crushing everybody. I was in so much pain. I needed to get this right. shit off my back, right? So I get to that road from where we dropped the truck off up high, and two guys are driving up the road that um, new people are – and I'm not functioning uh-huh. like, like you know, hey, what's four plus four? Would it take right. me a minute to answer? So I'm hunched over, and I'm like, hey, can you guys <laughs> take me down to our truck? Well, we're going to cook dinner. And I'm like, you fool.
1: fool. I'm like, <laughs> all right.
0: And they're like, are you OK? I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm not. And so I'm hobbling my way to your truck. Uh, and uh, lo- they were cool. So I, I get to your truck and just lay there for a minute because I'm not happy and I'm trying to forget food. And then here comes Mitchell and uh, well, Mike with the llama and, and Mitchell and uh, Levi. And Mike talked to him, and they took Mike down to get our truck to, to come up. Yeah. So I think tax, title, and license, I had 18 to 20, and you had to have 23 to 25 that day. That's without hunting, right? right. That's just getting the elk out. Yeah. So people, you know, I'm like, there's a reason that place is special. That's a long ways in. Like, it's yeah. not something most people are probably going to be able Even with llamas, we got the shit kicked out of us.
3: So you guys yeah. had three llamas? Yeah, yeah. So next, two and a half. Really, next early. time you guys will play, maybe <laughs> plan on like six. How many I can you? Might, many, I think we might
1: plan on horses. <laughs> <it's> yeah. Horse. <laughs> uh, what what can a llama carry for weight?
2: So, like a, a a decent sized llama will carry you know in the eighty pound range. When, oh, really? That much? Yeah. When the, when you load them with meat, they can carry a little bit more because the weight isn't so far out distributed from the body. It's denser, so the panniers kind of collapse closer in. The way a llama walks is both feet on one side move at the same time, so they kind of get more of a swaying gait to them. That's why, you know, if you have uh, camping gear, it's bulkier, and that weight's distributed further from their their center mass of their body. So you don't want to load them you know, with a bunch of weight to one side because it really starts swaying them a lot. But with meat, it's denser, so it's kind of almost hanging more directly below them almost. So they'll do better and can carry a little bit more weight if it's a you know, more compact load like a load of meat is. The,
0: the problem is, I just added it up, we had about 675 pounds of gear and dead animal, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe seven. So figure 60 to 65 a person. And then... You Probably got what 200 pounds of meat off your bull,
2: yeah. I think it was 220 if I remember correctly. I got
0: 176, I think, out of mine. So we were pushing 700 pounds yeah. with three llamas and uh five guys spread out over the course of 15 miles. So right. it was a day, yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, I was I remember thinking, not pumping your tires up. I told Mike, I'm like, Jesus, sounds a tough little fucker. I was like, He's gonna be pushing 25 miles today, and and Mike was telling Mitchell and Levi, when they were at the truck, they're like, we don't need to rush, we don't, and Mitchell was like, no, we can't leave them hanging. And Mike's like, well, the longer we wait, the closer they'll be to <laughs> us coming out. Right. And uh, I remember when you, cause I followed you out and it was, uh, no offense, you were the epitome of a Ninja Turtle with a rack on your back cause I could not see you. So, and you waddle with, I waddle with heavy weight, you do right. the same thing. Uh-huh. So he's got this giant rack in this, huge pack and it's like i can just see it swaying down the trail i'm like he's in as much pain as i am we're good right and, and it wasn't a horrible trail i mean it's there's obviously ups and downs but it is far i mean it was yeah. a long way so
2: yeah when you have to put the miles on it it uh it doesn't matter you know it's just a grind at getting it in that you kind of just have to kind of block it out and think about happier things yeah how long going it yeah. take for you guys to recover
0: I went elk hunting the next day with Amy, and it sucked.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, I had some seriously sore muscles. You know, the worst the the worst thing to me the whole day, so we sat around camp, you know, got up in the morning, we built a fire. We sat around BS, kind of reminisced about it, talked about a plan. We kicked things around. We came up with different scenarios. I don't know how long we burned sitting there talking around the campfire, but— what really sucked was we missed the last restaurant in uh, town being open by 15 minutes. <laughs> uh. Well, it
0: was funny because, um, when I hit the, the, the trail, um, right. I was pulling out whatever food I could find. Cause yeah. I, I was hungry. And, uh, Mike and I, I don't know what, cause you, I don't know. It was, it was late. Right. I mean, we were a little bit ahead of you guys cause you yep. were still coming out. And, um, we get to a gas station, and I'm, like, buying cheese cheese, and beet jerky and whatever uh-huh. I can consume and energy drinks, which I don't like to drink at midnight. Well, we have that drive back. In the middle, Amy calls, and she's like, hey, can we go elk hunting in the morning? Because uh-huh. she has it, and I'm like, Mike, what do you th- – you want to go? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, it's fine. So we drive all the way back. We sleep two hours. Oh, man. And then get up and, and uh-huh. go with, with Amy, which it wasn't like we backpacked in or whatever, but – the The biggest thing on on uh, you know my end wasn't like my my I went like knees or back or whatever my feet were yeah fucking sore like oh, the man. fatty pads of my feet are starting to wear out are you mm-hmm. getting that yet yeah oh yeah every part of me is wearing <laughs> <out>. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, like when I wait people message me and it's like it's not a matter of being a a, a badass doing that for, in a day right I don't want to go back like the miles right like mm-hmm. I can handle the weight I just didn't want to. Like, when you left, at least you didn't have a pack on because you were putting on a lot of miles. Right. But when I got that pack on my back and got to my feet, in fact, on the video, you can hear me. I'm like, all right, let's get the fuck out of here because I was like, I'm not stopping until we get, again, you go into that zone and then grind. But literally, when those people were talking to me, I was probably not the most uh, pleasant man in the world. Sure. Because I'm, like, hunched over, and they're like, how heavy is that? And I'm like, you want to help me get it off my back? Uh They grabbed it off my back and they were like, and then I think that's when they felt a little more compassionate about uh, giving us a ride. <laughs> oh, it's not a 40 pound day <laughs> pack? No. <laughs> yeah. No, that was it. It was a, a heck of a trip. But um, while well, we got all of us on here, because we, we all hunt quite a bit, I get a, a ton of questions and, and, and people are always bugging me. Like, if I get you back on to kind of circle the round table, just as far as efficiency on actually killing an animal in the red zone. Um and, and and it's not there's a lot more to it than that. Um, you know, obviously there's scouting, knowing the area. And you there's a lot of times you don't even scout, like you don't get a chance to.
2: Yeah, you know what? I've um I've never scouted for Mule Deer once in my there you life. go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh it's just you know, I've I've either lived too far away, which has been the bulk of my life, and would have had to, you know, a, a day's travel just driving to get to, you know, a trailhead that and then hike, hiking in. So it would have been what, three days burn just yeah. in transit. And then now, um, now that I'm uh, out here in Colorado, um, you know, I've hunted the same area now since 2011. So I know it pretty well. And I'm not the kind of hunter that, um, you know is looking for one specific buck or you know a minimum score. So for me I know there's going to be deer in there. There is every year and just going to be a matter of how big they are and how many there's going to be. And uh so um it's not really all that necessary for me to to scout at least if, assuming that I get the same tag, you know, year in and year out. But if I'm going to a new area then um then it you know is definitely beneficial, but I think that one of the I you know, I love seeing new country, but um I think it's kinda underplayed how important knowing, you know, knowing your area is. And the more time you spend going back to the same spot, the greater your chances of success is gonna be in the future. At least that's what I feel.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think <clears throat> a lot of the scouting that we do also has to do with um, learning what campsites are the best places right. to set up your camp or what water, water sources yep. uh, where you can get water backup water sources there's been times where I've camped in a spot and there's a, a spring running like a like a water fountain and then a couple come back a couple <laughs> years later there's no water and I'm drinking yep. out of a out of a seep that's full of bugs and moss and dirt yeah kind of pumping it out so I think that's a big part of scouting and just knowing your, like you're saying knowing your area and, becoming more familiar with it because the animals generally will be there but finding out where your plan B might be if you have to move camp or something like that's pretty important.
2: Well, any time spent back in there too, you're only accelerating, you know, the the pace that you learn that area too. So, you know, if you if you hunt one area for 3 years and you only hunt it during hunting season, but um you know conversely if you were to scout it 3 times also then it's like doubling the amount of time that you spend in there you know or the amount of time that you spend in there hunting
0: well i uh, let's go into it a little bit more in depth because we've oversimplified that hitting the fucking animal seems to be a big problem for people so once you're in the like having i uh, back up you will go just about anywhere at any time to get to an animal. Would you say that's true? If you see there is a slight chance yeah. you can kill it, you're going.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. If I've got enough daylight left <laughs> and, uh, and I think that, you know, and that's, that can change too somewhat, I mean, I'll, I'll weigh out, you know, different stocks. And, and, uh, I remember, you know, talking to, um, a cameraman that I had one year and, I. Uh, we're laying on this hillside glass in this basin, and there's, uh, you know, several bucks that are bedded. Um, and, you know, I'm going, no, it's not going to work. So we'll just stay put. And, and uh, you know, some of them are really good bucks that I would carve a body part off of to get. Um, and then eventually, you know, a deer moves into a position, and it's like, you know, I'm jumping up and I'm going. And I uh, and I remember him commenting about that, and and uh, a lot of it is, you know, just experiences um, stacked up over the years, and knowing, uh, you know, what's going to be a higher percentage stock and what's not. So I I definitely will pass up um, lower percentage stocks earlier in the hunt, but then as you know, time starts to get um, shorter and i feel like okay if i blow this animal out and i'm not going to see him for a couple days it's still worth that that chance because i'll I'll actually have the opportunity rather than let's say we're on day two of an eight-day hunt and i bump a buck that is what i deem a low percentage stock i know i'm not going to maybe see that deer for a few days so instead i'll i'll be a little bit more conservative and let it sit and uh, and hope that, you know, he either gets up and rebeds um later that day or maybe even the next day that that I'll have an opportunity for him. But if I see a stock that, you know, is across the canyon and deer beds in a good spot and it's gonna take me, you know, hours to get over there, I'm definitely donning my pack and headed <laughs> that direction. Well, I,
0: Frank, you're the same way. I mean, if it's realistic to now, keep in mind, realistic for me with a compound in my hand is a lot different than a stick bow. Um, with a stick bow, I, I, I've got to get, you know, closer, but um, being able to, well, Frank touched on it, go the distance, the, the the amount you can stay, and then being physically able to get to the fucking deer. I mean, a lot of people don't have both of those things going for them. So. Yeah, I think South
3: is spot on about, it, it comes with a lot of experience over time, but um, you know, you, you, spot the deer, you got to factor in how long is it going to take you to get to where they're at? How long is it going to take you to move in to shooting distance? Um, how much, what time of day is it? If do you have enough time to make it over there before the wind changes and, and the wind's blowing down and you, you can't sit above them. So I think there's a, a ton of factors the hunting pressure. Um, this year, for instance, there were a lot more people back where, where we were hunting and I happened to find a, just a freaking tank and I had to make the decision to move in on it that day and the stock didn't work out and never saw that deer again. So sometimes there's, there's factors that are out of your control. And then some things you can control and it just comes with time.
0: So uh, like uh, Frank with the, the different hunts that, that, that you've been on for, for mule deer specifically, kind of cater to those. How many times have you blown out a buck where you didn't see it for two to four days? Like that one you went seven, after. You never saw it again. No, I didn't
3: that one this year. We uh we had been scouting a few years ago and there was a there was this one buck that had this little kicker point off the side and I watched him all summer long every time we went and he was there and um first day of the season he disappeared and then uh I ended up killing a different deer. We came back and Aaron killed that three point, um that big three point and we glassed up where I'd been camping and nearby where I'd been camping, where I'd been seeing this deer. And uh, he was back like two weeks later, <laughs> right in the same that spot. That big drop time, bug? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I, yeah. No, I, I remember that actually. And I don't think people, you know, realize once a deer gets over four or five, it's kind of a different animal, and they're a lot smarter. And I'm not saying the deer run forever, but you may not you may not see them for a while. And that well, that deer that we were seeing this year, that big big one, we we just caught glimpses of it twice. And I don't know how big that how big it was that deer I don't it was big, um giant, but we just caught glimpses of him, yeah. like just last first you know the last um like what first light, just the last few or it's first light, but right when you first could see, we just catch him dropping into the wood line, which is almost impossible to kill him, yeah, and so you know things that i i I think that people really need to you know consider is is um Hitting the animal is also extremely important, which people sometimes maybe overlook. And so accuracy is pretty important, but also try to, I say, go into slow motion. But when you're on a stock, list off everything you are thinking about on a stock, like that last 40 yards or 30 or 50 or whatever.
2: So um, wind direction, you know, and assuming that, um, I mean, that that wind's got to be pretty darn consistent for me to, to commit to a stock. I'm not going to, if that, if that wind's really shifty, I'm more than likely not going to try. Um, and cause that's, you're just playing too low of a, um, you know, odds percentage if you get in, you know, real tight, and then you have to wait for that deer to stand up for some reason, and you're there for, you know, minutes or hours, the chances are if that wind is not really good and consistent that it's going to shift and it's going to swirl or whatever. So um, if, if you have a shifty wind, then I'm not even, you know, going in. So wind is, you know, obviously something that's on my mind, but I've more than likely already dismissed that because um, I've already, you know, factored that in so much earlier in the stock. So uh, mostly, it's going to be about making noise, and uh, and so I'm, you know, that's why, that's why you see me a lot of times in my boxers, particularly if I'm going through vegetation. Um, then. A- Sorry, I had to. Yeah, I'm not out there modeling. (laughs) I can't do that. My legs are too white. Right? Yeah, it's just uh, I found, you know, in the the Sitka, um, shoot, now I'm going to forget which. uh, Apex? Yes, the Apex Pants. Um, they're pretty quiet, you know, right out of the bag, but you wash them three or four or five times, man, those things are like, they get quieter every time you wash them. They are a really great pant from a a noise standpoint.
0: Or if you don't wash them and wear them for like three months, they get pretty quiet too. Yeah. uh, You can also smell them. But so the noise portion of it, um, I don't, it's different with a stick bow, obviously, Mm -hmm. because you're closer things that were not important to me before I picked the stick bow up, became real fucking important real yep. quick because where before I dropped something at 60, now I'm like, can I get to 16? You know, I'm trying to right. get closer. Frank, you talked about like bino harnesses. Yep. In a lot of ways, they're the devil. Um, I don't worry about my hand rubbing against it, but when I'm crawling in, my knee hitting it mm-hmm. is is loud. Um, I shoot veins now, but like for a while, feathers brushing against my pant leg. Right. I mean- like, let's go around the horn. What have you blown out from noise and, and 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 probably you're like the one where you want to stop and cry?
2: Well, even going back to, you know, the bino harness there again, just having the bino harness, you know, you're talking about approaching on your hands and knees and having that bino harness shift, um, just rubbing against your shirt. You know, if, you, if it's a Cordura bino harness, then uh, that will make enough noise that, you know, on one of those still mountain afternoons where there's just... You're you a you cricket can hear, fart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and from 100 yards, you know, it's just like dead, quiet. And man, those mule deer have giant ears there and they, they use them. Um, but I, yeah, I, I couldn't begin to tally up the amount of stalks that I've blown and the reasons for having blown them.
0: H- having an insole squeak. You don't really uh-huh. notice that. And then on those cricket fart days, yeah. You might as well be like, Hey, right. Hey every step of my like, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Frank, you pull your Bino
3: harness off a lot for the stock. I man. usually take my harness off and throw my rangefinder in my pocket and hope that I don't drop it out of my pocket. <laughs> but even stuff like your release clicking um, clicking your release and it's like it's mm-hmm. like you try to tell yourself not to touch your release, but you do anyway, and somehow you make the trigger go off and the hooks yeah. dangling. <laughs> um yeah, yeah it sounds an... like it's going through a megaphone when <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> yeah. Any any number of things, but even like, um, you don't really think about this till you're actually on a stock and you're in the middle of the hunt. Is just where the orientation of your bow and where you're trying to move through brush stabilizers. You know, you have your back bar, your front bar, and trying to make sure you're not rubbing that against stuff. The arrow on the shelf, dang, hitting the riser. Mm-hmm. All yep, kinds of people stuff. people
0: laugh because I I, moleskin
2: a lot yep. like. Yeah, your whole sight window is not yeah. a bad idea.
0: Well, the whole I do from a uh, half moon down. So how? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yours is the same way. I moleskin the bottom half of my sight window or my sight, my mm-hmm. housing, my whole sight window. You know, I've I moleskin my release from mm-hmm. it. And the thing is, is like when you're getting started in hunting, you're initially probably worried about you know getting a bow, shooting some gear. And then you realize when you actually get to the moment of killing something, a lot of that shit was not important that you really focused on. And things like, well, I mean, the the noise thing's huge, but like, in case of, ain't my wife, right, we hunt a lot together, she will black out, like, badly. And so if you're shooting a hinge release or not a hinge of back tension, she'll forget to hold the button down. And mm-hmm. draw like <laughs> and an inch it. Ding, right. and it go. Uh-huh. Or in case of, of uh, Wesley, the Mormon Mafia, he was shooting a hinge yeah. and he was above that big deer, or not a hinge, a back tension. Well, when he got above it, he was so jacked up on Mountain Dew, he had five extra pounds of pressure. The moment he let that thumb button go, where normally you let it go and push and pull, he let it go and that fucker went off and he, six yard shot, he hit the tree above it at six yeah. yards. So. A lot of things people don't think about, the noise thing's a big one. And, you know, I I tell people, like, for example, um, when when you're talking about your rest, if you are clicking that thing over in the last 20 yards, you have fucked up, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or in the case of a knock, you wouldn't think knocking your arrow on the string is that loud? Oh, man. Yeah, you might as well just say, "Hey, I'm a hunter and I'm trying to kill you," because it it, it is is it's loud. I mean, yep. and people don't realize it. Or David. even
3: drawing your bow back on the and the <laughs> and the arrow
0: rubbing on the on the uh, the whatever
3: what's the that launch, called launcher. the launcher
1: launcher yeah the launcher just that sound of yep. 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 yeah yep David, what have you blown out? Oh man, so many things. <laughs> um, one thing comes to mind. I was telling South about this giant, probably 200 inch buck, and I'd been hunting him for years. The last time i drew back on him um, i was up on top of a ridge and i spotted him and a smaller buck and i think this buck was probably about 180 one, you know upper 170s 180 and he was with uh, a smaller four point and they had three does with them and there are a bunch of finger ridges down below me and the the wind is going up the thermals are going up because it's the afternoon and i'm way up on this ridge and i spot them and i drop down cut them off and i can't get any closer and i find this pinch point where they're about to pop out and I drop my pack, get into place, and I walk over, and I stand on top of this rock. And I didn't take my boots off just because it was so steep. I would have you know, probably hurt my feet and, and slid a lot. But <clears throat> I get down there, and I'm watching, and I see a doe pop up. And I have an arrow knocked, and I've got everything ranged. A doe pops up. Another doe pops up. I see antlers. I'm about to draw back, and it's a smaller buck. And then the bigger buck doesn't come out, and he's just... On the other side of some pines, you know, another 10 feet below the other deer, and I'm sitting there watching, and I turned my foot, and it was sitting on top of a pebble on top of this big boulder, and (laughs) oh, (laughs) shit. They blew out so fast. I mean, I've had feathers rub against stuff. I've I've had my arrow flip off, like catch on a a twig and bounce off my rest and then hit the sight and the riser, and (laughs) I've had
2: animals blow out like crazy like that. I had a bull, um, one, this back in the day, I was shooting a compound, buddy of mine called in to me and I was like in the middle of the flat wide open. And I had, you know, there was some f- heavy fog, um, first thing in the morning. And this bull came in out of the fog comes out. I mean, it's just like giant bull, totally majestic, you know, comes out of the fog, like a movie. And I uh, were up on top of this Mesa and uh, grass, you know, ankle high. And uh, so I jumped into a bush and luckily the sun was rising behind me. So I was, you know, silhouetted there from the bull's point of view. And my buddy was behind me and he had one of those Montana elk decoys. So I, it was a perfect opportunity from that standpoint. That bull saw that cow decoy and then his, his uh, body posture completely relaxed. And he just came milling in to me and uh, this is back when those um, when the dropway rests had first come out, and so I had you know super tuned mine so that it would it would uh, come up there the last you know possible second, and so I I as this bull comes in um, and then turn starts to turn broadside, do me at about thirty yards, I draw my bow back, and the bottom blade on my three blade broadhead was you know, perfectly down, and it caught the end of my riser just as my rest was coming up <laughs> oh. and pulled my arrow off the string just as I get back <laughs> to full draw. So I'm at full draw, and the arrow's falling down my limb and down, you know, between my bus cables here, and I uh, this bull's broadside to me, just totally oblivious to what's going on. And I look down, and so I let my bow down. I reach down as, as slowly as I could, <laughs> grab the arrow, knock it, put, clip my release back on, start to draw. And then I was like, wait a second, if this happened once, (laughs) it's gonna happen again. (laughs) So I let back down, unclip my release, push my arrow off the string, spin it 180 degrees, clip my, you know, knock, re-knock it, draw back again. And then now the bulls, you know, move to my right for a left, for a right-handed shooter. So I've got to awkwardly turn my body. As I do, I'm wearing a spandiflage head net that I just cut the holes in the, you know, for the eyes. And I get back to full draw and I look and my right eye is covered by the, the <laughs> oh. spandiflage head net so i can't see so now i've got to turn my head like pull my face away from the string cock my head like i'm looking down a, a knot hole and then look through my peep and i managed to get my shot off and but it was like a complete debacle <laughs> there
0: we were just talking um i was talking to the guys from sever brought broadheads mechanical early earlier and uh I'm not bashing on different broadheads, but there's a few on the, on the market that, that they'll open up relatively easy. Uh-huh. And uh, twice this year, clients, you know, that they, they get uh, you know caught on brush or whatever. Right. You don't know. And then the guy goes to draw it. And like, I'm looking and I'm like, man, that blade's way out there. And then it hits the front of the riser. Uh-huh. <clears throat> the one dude dry fired his bow. Cause oh, I'm man. like, wait, wait, wait. Well, he's in the, yeah, <clears throat> I'm going to kill it. What happened? I'm, and oh, I'm like, yeah, bro, your, <laughs> your ship fell off, you know, whatever. <laughs> and so people, you know, you don't, hard to mock up that. Right. Mm-hmm. But when you're getting your, what, I guess what I'm saying is anything that can go wrong eventually will go wrong in, in hunting. So it's just, not just noise, you know, like obviously when you're going on a stock, you're looking at its time, seeing what it's doing, especially when you're pinned down behind it, breaking limbs, what, I mean, all this stuff. But then like, If you, a lot of guys that don't realize, like, you're used to drawing your bow super smooth, stick bow or compound. Right. Put an animal in front of you, guys get string pinched, and then the arrow becomes a projectile 90 degrees off the string. Or with a compound, boom, boom, and it's bouncing up and down. And so you really, I mean, you want to try to mimic that as much as you possibly can. I don't, have you had any issues like that? I haven't heard any. You talk about any, but like drawn
3: back too hard yeah i, I feel like with uh, earlier bows that you know that the ones that like you'll dump over when your cam when yeah the string rolls over you'll pop pop into your back wall and then pop right back right. out because yeah. It, yeah. that's <laughs> the worst you get that that, <laughs>
0: that recoil off of that so yeah
3: I've, I've had that happen a few times before
0: yeah so when guys um like a ton of different questions um you know, campsites like there's, I it's hard for me to tell anyone over the internet where they should camp because it's so situationally dependent. Not in the basin you're hunting. Yes. I, I believe we've said that with some four letter words hooked onto it. I try to stay far enough away from the elk, the deer, whatever, to where I'm close enough to where it's not a huge burden to get there, but I'm far enough away where noise and scent isn't a problem and there's water somewhere. That's kind of yeah. what I look at. After that, I can't tell you where to go. I'm not hunting your area. I don't know your area. None of us are. And, you know, to me, it's it's relatively common sense. Uh, don't camp in the basin, even when there's water there. If you have to drop down to the basin to get water, at least you're still hunting. If you camp there, I, I'm certain you will not be hunting those animals anymore. They're going to run away. So you may have to do a little extra work for water, but camp a safe enough distance for noise and smell buy water that's close enough to where you don't have a you know two hour hike to get into your your hunting area that's about the best advice i can give but i mean you guys throw your two
2: cents in. i'm gonna go pee pee so i i like to to camp as close to where i i'm hunting as i possibly can just to you know have as much sleep as i can and then to burn as few calories as i have to to get there and uh, up to, you know, where I'm going to glass. And ideally, like if I'm in a spot, um, where I'm going to glass from in the morning, where I can easily hop from one ridge to another, one basin to another as quickly and efficiently as possible so that I can cover as much ground, then that's where, um, where I'm going to camp. And I'm kind of thinking back as Aaron was posing that question, kind of as to like the last handful of campsites where I've been hunting. And, generally speaking, they're, you know, within a quarter mile of where I'm going to be glassing in the morning. And uh, usually on the backside of a ridge or a canyon of where I'm going to be hunting or planning on glassing in the morning. So that's typically, I, I try to get, you know, within a quarter mile or so of where I'm going to be hunting. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah.
3: It's usually about maybe a 20 to 30 minute max hike to right. where you're going to glass the next morning or or what have you. But definitely don't camp at the, at the top either. Something people forget about and then lightning strikes and gets a little interesting.
2: Yeah. I, there's some people that really have you know, different, everyone's got their own phobias, I suppose. Um, I've certainly been in some, um, you know, lightning storms that, you know, light up the tent and all that. I don't know what the, you know, what kind of odds there are of getting hit by lightning, but, um, probably I don't know where it is compared to getting mauled by a bear. (laughs) or hit by a car really (laughs) um i don't worry about lightning
0: that much um i guess i always look at it if i'm that unlucky it's time for me to go anyway because the the percentage has got to be relatively low but i mean you you look at it what are the options if you're in your tent run like down to the wood line in the middle of the night especially if it's pissing rain then you're running into potential for you know hypothermia or you know whatever so there's not a lot of options, I just curl up turn up put usually put on a like a audio book and hope for the best that I don't get smoked, but we've had some bad ones roll through um
2: yeah, going but sticking with that lightning there, um I remember packing out um i don't know three years or so ago from the high country, and we we're about right about halfway back down to the truck um from you know. and uh, in the timber for quite a long time and came across a tree that was still smoldering from getting hit by lightning. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, to to think that you're going to drop a thousand feet into the timber and be okay isn't necessarily, I mean, you're, you're probably lessening your odds of getting hit by having a whole bunch of trees around versus being, you know, stuck up, you know, on top of a knob or something, but it can, you know, the light just shows you the lightning will strike at lower elevations there as well. Yeah. Yeah. It will for sure. Um, one of the, um, we we're, we were talking about earlier
0: with the stalking and the, the red zone or whatever else, um, I'm probably more aggressive than I, you know, should be. Some people are more patient. I don't, Frank, you're probably happy medium. I wouldn't say you're overly one way or another. Um, I've had better luck being aggressive, but I think that you have to have uh, maybe a little bit more, you're probably going to blow more shit out initially being more aggressive until you learn when or when not to be uh, aggressive. I can't not be, I'm really bad about that. Now, once I see a deer, if I have to sit above it, I will, but, even then I'll throw rocks to stand it up. Um, I, I guess uh, I, for people listening in, it's kind of a personal thing. Like if you're not an aggressive person, you're not going to make yourself be an aggressive hunter. But I, I would say that if you are aggressive and you're kind of aggressive, how much shit did you blow out being aggressive before you got the handle on it?
2: Well, here, here's my, here's my, <laughs> t- I've blown out a lot. <laughs> here's my take on this though. Cause I think that Um, You know, if you're super patient and, uh, you know, let's just look at this from the beginning hunter standpoint, right? Who doesn't know whether they should or shouldn't go on a stock, you know, you're kind of trying to, without the experience, you're sitting there looking at all the conditions and you're trying to weigh out, okay, is this that high percentage stock? Should I go or should I wait for a better opportunity? I'm going to tell you that you should go because you're going to learn a lot more um, and you're going. Let's just say you have a 10-day hunt, and you have three consecutive years of 10-day hunts, and you're super patient, and you're waiting for the perfect conditions, and you only get one stock, you know that that works out to be perfect each year over those 10 years. You're not going to learn a lot on three stocks versus if you're aggressive and you are going on a stock every day or every other day over that those same you know. 30 days over three years, you're going to learn, you're going to compile a lot more experience, you know, having 15 or 20 failed stocks, and then maybe a couple that are, you know, that work out for you in that time versus, you know, because you're going to learn a ton. You're not going to learn just like, okay, I, sh- I went when I shouldn't have, or I, or, you know, that did work out. And uh, so that was the right, those were the right conditions. But you're also going to learn a lot about, you know, being in the red zone that you can't replicate without the experience. So I think
0: trigger time too, they, you know, you may get some shots or, or, or miss them or have your arrow bounce up and hit your site housing or bounce off you and learn that maybe your setup wasn't as good as you thought it was.
2: Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think that there's a substitute for experience and so trying to just get as much as you can. That's why these guys, you know, down in Australia that have, you know, a 365, day season with no bag limits, um, those guys compile experience really quickly. Or, you know, having an off-season hunt like going to Texas and hunting javelina or, you know, um other non-game, you know, the odd ads that you guys are doing guided hunts for, or even just going out and rabbit hunting. I mean, I think that small game um, hunts are, are, um, opportunities that get overlooked because people are so focused on big game, you know, turkeys in the spring or, or whatever there, all these animals are, you know, relatively wily and you need to utilize some, um, hunting experience there in order to, to be able to get a shot or, or I, or get one. So I, I wouldn't, you know, just going out there and shooting ground squirrels, it can be, you know, learning experience there. Well, uh, recently, and I hope my wife doesn't listen to this
0: uh, podcast, but um, the experience, the the trigger time, we were with Rotier and we had a bunch of rifles because we got her just to shoot, right? Mm -hmm. We were talking about target acquisition, like, you know, the difference from inside of 50 or 100 offhand to dropping down to resting on a knee to farther shots. And we kept relating it to the archery, right? Just trigger time and ryan had brought up he said there's no better trigger time with a bow or a gun or like it's like ground uh, ground squirrels or whatever you prairie dogs right rabbits whatever well uh, you guys know amy well enough she can get pretty spun up pretty quick and so you know how guys like you hear they have like male like they can't get a they can't get an erection they have like in front of a woman and then they have like like what do they call that uh performance issues <laughs> amy has that drawing a bow like she gets a turkey in front of her she can't draw her bow and uh-huh. it's she'll draw that bow 100 times put a turkey in front of her it ain't coming so we call in like six birds or three big toms and they're like for me to frank and you know I'm like kill them shoot and she literally looks like i just kicked her dog with her head down she's like i can't draw my bow <laughs> what do you mean you can't draw your you know she draws it all the time right? i'm like so it gets out at like 25 and she takes shots she doesn't hit it and so now she's so, she can't, so I'm like, I'm going to kill it. So I grab my bow. I'm like, range it. She's like 38. And I'm like, no, it's not 30. She's shaking. And uh, I'm like, for fuck's sake, honey, it's a turkey. So anyway, I end up getting one and we, we see a lone bird and <clears throat> perfect, you know, he <clears throat> all by himself looking for love. We run down, set up a blind, throw a turkey, de- a decoy out. A bird comes in on a string. She misses it by three feet uh-huh. at, like, nine yards. And I'm like, calm down. She's like,
2: what? And I'm like,
0: calm down. And so Bird comes back again because it doesn't, her bow's quiet. She's shooting my arrows. Uh-huh. Out of, like So she's shooting a 500-grain arrow out of a 40-some-pound uh-huh. bow. And uh, I'm like, calm down. Draw your bow back again. So Bird comes back in. She misses by at least three feet again. She's like, I feel like my shots are good. And I would look at her. I was like, who the fuck are you kidding? You didn't miss by three inches. You missed by three feet. I'm like, breathe, okay, breathe. Well, now none of this is helping. Like you've talked about it. Your second shot is not a good shot, right? You're all spun up. right? So the bird comes back out, and I'm like, breathe, okay? So we've got the drawing the bow down. Now we just need to hit the thing. Well, so I've been trying to explain to her a slow-mo video what she does because it's this. Uh, And she just wings her arm over to see if she hit it. Right. But I think before she's even hit the trigger. So now it circles around. She just draws her bow back, I guess, for the hell of it. I'm like, no, wait. Because she's going to be at full draw for seven minutes. At this Uh, point, I'm like, let down, let down. Let's down. And I cut on the the slate call. And it's coming. And I'm like, draw. So I can see her. She's getting ready to let the. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. And I'm like, it's coming to the blind. And so she ends up like five yards pinwheeling this turkey. My moral to that story is if you got to get that experience, you're not going to get yep. that without animals in front of you. She's getting better and better. But like we get clients, you know, down there that, that haven't hunted a whole lot. Like we're in Texas for sheep and that's all spot and stock and it's all day like yep. over and over. Now you got to deal with 50 eyeballs. You know, there's a lot of sheep, but it's amazing. You'll get up to a guy that gets up to the edge of a cliff. He hasn't knocked his arrow uh-huh. And and I'll forget because it's assumed that you have an arrow knocked. And I'll be like, 17, kill it, click. And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, I fucked up. <laughs> I didn't – things like that are what you'll learn, like, right. on those stocks. And not necessarily – the other thing, too, is what you can get away with. Like, well, you've talked about this before. Guys, like, creeping in from 400 yards out. And it's like, dude, run. They yeah. can't – you
2: know, talk about that a little bit. So, yeah, that's one of those things where – When when I'm sitting in a spot and I'm glassing deer and as soon as I see something, then uh, I'm, you know, immediately I go into mode of like, okay, you know, even if it, even if that deer is just up feeding and I know I'm not going to stalk him in that position, I like to start to think about how I would approach that deer if, you know, let's just say it bedded right there. Then I, that you start, you know, getting that kind of mindset going and I. My typical stalk that I like to do is put something large, like a ridge between me and whatever I'm stalking, something that's going to obscure their vision so that I can move as quickly as I can to get as close as I can before I have to go into that, you know, the last hundred yards or whatever that distance might be getting into that stealth mode because the... you know, the the longer that deer stays there, um, or I should say, the longer it takes you to get over into the red zone, then the greater the chance, you know, the more of a chance that deer is going to have to stand up and get up, you know, move or or, uh, re-bed in a different position. And then you might not have a shot opportunity versus, you know, if you, um, if you, Take a you know, that's looking at between taking a long time to get there versus covering that distance as quickly as you can. And this is where, you know, getting into mountain shape pays dividends because you want to get there as fast as you can um, and get in as close as you can. Um, and I've seen a lot of guys that just take like, they they are trying to be quiet from half a canyon away. And it's like, no, you need to hustle. You need to be Covering ground and getting over there and getting in tight, so that it doesn't take you an hour to get into position. It takes you, you know, twenty minutes or something. Any minute that you can shave off, I've had. There's so many times that I've, I've gotten in close on a buck and then had him stand up just as I got like within range. And had I had not been hustling, I would have never gotten a shot opportunity. Yeah. Um. I know, Frank. You want to dive in on any of that? Obviously,
0: you you're hunting pretty rough you know terrain or whatever like when you are are you i mean you're just hauling ass walking you don't really ever run but i mean you're just smoking it as far as you possibly can to a designated point that you choose to drop your pack or your harness or whatever yeah i
3: i totally agree with what south's saying using the topography to your advantage is is huge but yeah you definitely want to hustle it up um i i I guess I would enter like stealth mode like you said at about 100 yards, drop my pack, drop my take my shoes off, take my harness off and then start sneaking in and then from there my mindset is if I can hear myself walking then that's that's too loud. Yeah, <laughs> So you got to yeah, into that stealth mode and for us being compound shooters, you know, I I feel pretty confident usually at about 40 yards where I'll stop and set up, maybe maybe 30, but for you guys, you guys have it way harder than we do. You guys are sneaking into 10 yards sometimes. I
0: may not this year. Uh, I'm liking that compound. I mean, I, <laughs> the, uh, I, th- I think though, that, um, when you when like, when you drop your drawers, right. You're not doing it for fame and glory pants are loud. Right. And, and skin is quiet. And so socks, you know, I've tried a ton of different, there is some good, um, stocking socks, but I've tried different, options for stocking socks and some of them are as loud as freaking footwear is is yeah. boots. And so, you know, it's just a matter in the in the wind is another thing. Like we get guys, especially down there, um, when we get a little bit windier of a day, they're not happy. I am extremely oh, happy yeah. when it's windy. <clears throat> now maybe not hurricane winds, but 15, 20 mile an hour gusts certainly make me happy because you certainly you if you can't, you said it best, when you can't hear yourself, they're probably not going to hear you. And when it's windy You can get away with a lot, plus you have brush moving, and people, I don't think, think about that as much as if you're in a little bit of brush and it's waving back and forth, it's really hard for them to pick movement out uh, when you're creeping in. And so I'm a fan of wind. I didn't used to be, but it allows you to get a lot closer and get away with a lot more, I say noise, but I mean you just don't have to be as careful.
3: Or even like a plane flying by, you know, over (laughs)
0: top. Sound pollution, use that to your advantage as
3: well.
2: Yeah, I've used those gusts of wind multiple times to – you know um time my movements through thicker brush um you know and any noise that I'll make with a gust of wind and um I can think specifically of two instances when I've done that and I uh, and I've gotten through you know dead um manzanita bushes in California on a stock that I relied on you know those periodic gusts entirely on being able to close the deal and then another time in Nevada, I'd uh, sneak. In fact, that was the first time I took my pants off. I had to sneak through a dead bush. And each time I'd wait until these gusts of wind came up and then use that noise. And I was, you know, 18 yards from this buck, End up shooting him at 15. But I had the only way I could get a shot was to go right through the middle of a, you know, chest high bush that was, you know, five or six feet in diameter.
0: Yeah. Well, when, when you, um, like with the well, that one I shot with you. That first buck I shot with my recurve. I don't know how it was a few feet away. The only thing that saved me is we had gusts, and every time a gust would happen, I'd take a step, and then I'd wait a little bit. Another gust, take a step, and then mm-hmm. it was actually funny because when I went to take my last step on the rock to shoot him, the gust blew me off the rock back down, and I was worried when I landed it was going to make enough noise, but it was so loud he didn't he didn't yeah. know. And when I got on top of him. The, the way I was sure that he didn't know is my broadhead was between his arrows when I, when his horns, when I drew back. And so I'm like, uh-huh. I thought maybe he was playing possum if he had heard something. And you watched the whole thing. I was probably what, five feet from that mm-hmm. deer. Um, never would have happened with a compound. That was my first yeah. deer with a, a stick bow. Yeah. When I got on top of that rock, I was literally like panicking of like, where do I shoot it? I can't believe this happened. Is he going to mm-hmm. see me? And my shadow almost crossed his eyes. where I, I knew he'd blow out without like a mountain lion or right. something. And wind, I never would have happened without wind. That's yep. the only reason I was able to get close enough. And sometimes, you know, people don't, you know, realize if you do your part in it, I mean, this sounds overly you know, simplistic. Maybe if you've done your part and the animal doesn't have any, you know, doesn't know you're there. You have a lot of time where people get in that red zone. They panic. Sometimes you got the little devil on one shoulder saying, shoot, shoot, shoot. And the little angel on the right saying, calm down a lot of times in that 20 to 30 yard range, people will make a mistake worried. They're not going to get an opportunity. They got to get an arrow off when, if you're not too much of a ding dong, you've got a decent amount of, well, you've been above both of all of us. I'm sure animals for, I don't know. I've been above deer for an hour, two hours and they don't know I'm there. I'm just waiting for them to stand. And people, I think probably maybe panic a little bit.
2: Yeah. I think right there is when, um, more than anything, patience is going to pay dividends because if you try and force something, and and I've done this a ton shooting video, um, you know, trying to get the animal standing up on video, I'll force it, you know, throwing rocks or whatever. But that's not, you know, if, if you're not trying to get the thing on video, my, my worry is always, you know, the camera guy is going to have his camera off or we're going to run out of battery or run out of SD card or whatever. But if you're just trying to you know, shoot a deer and you have good wind direction and, uh, and you set up above them, just wait, wait for them to get up naturally. Cause they're going to get up. They're going to be relaxed, stretch a little. Yep. <laughs> and you're going to get a lot more of an opportunity than, uh, you know, taking a chance of them exploding out of their bed and trying to wing a shot.
0: Yeah. I've, I've had decent luck with standing them up, but, um, it's not always. And I've had, uh, animals I know I probably would have killed if I wouldn't have stood them right. up. Um, the thing is, you go from an animal like a dog relaxing, where he gets out of bed, stretches his back, you know, whatever, shakes his nuts, and no idea you're there. He stands up because you threw something. He's already on edge, and he may, you may just miss him because he ducks the string, um, which is not going to probably happen when he gets out of bed, you know, naturally or whatever. And and I've had I've I had good luck with it, and I've fucked it up too. Like I've a couple of my larger deer I didn't kill. I stood up and probably yeah. would have hit him if I would have let him stand up on
2: their own yeah I, I don't want to talk about that I can specifically <laughs> think of one buck that i I blew, and it was um I think the lesson behind this one was that I was so keyed into what my plan for that deer was rather than you know what all possible um scenarios were uh i had a I had a big buck that was bedded in the willows, and i uh, I could just see his antler tips. And uh, I snuck into about fifteen yards of them, and I had grabbed a pocket full of rocks before I um, started my stalk. and I got right in on top of them. and uh, I threw every rock except for one at this deer or over this deer, because my my plan was I'll throw rocks, you know beyond the deer. The deer's going to stand up to look down the hill to see what all these you know all these rocks are hitting the the brush you know below them. Well, um I got to my last rock and I threw it and I you know intentionally threw it a little closer to him to uh make sure that he stood up because I there was no rocks around where I was standing I had had to import them and uh, when he stood up instead of looking down the hill he stood up and I uh, and was facing at a 90 degree angle to me and If I would have had the wherewithal to every time I threw a rock to crouch down and just have, you know, kind of that alligator to have my eyes just above the vegetation so that I could figure out what I needed to do to react when he did stand up, then I could have waited until he turned his head. But what happened was he stood up. I started to draw. He, of course, caught movement out of my perif- his peripheral vision and then whipped his head my way and then hit the gas. And, and my reflexes were too slow. And, you know, I got a shot about five feet behind him. As I think was, I saw that on video. Yeah. Yeah, you did. <laughs> that was <laughs> a big that, buck. That was a monster buck, man. That was uh, that was a monster for right. sure. This is actually a funny story. This is uh,
0: about throwing rocks. Um, you've, you guys have met Scotty um, Campbell, yep. my buddy. Um, he's not exactly a baseball player, right? So we stalk in on this deer, and uh, the kid's kind of green, super excited, and so Scotty's like, all right, I'm going to throw this rock, go to full draw. And uh, guys at full draw, Scotty smokes. Scotty couldn't have had, I mean, like Nolan Ryan. Uh... <laughs> smokes in the ass. I mean, oh, that's the end of the story. <laughs> the deer ran away. We never killed it. I mean, literally, Scotty just kind of chucks one, and I mean – perfectly right in the middle of the butt cheeks oh, like man. and, and I, I looked at Scotty I was like were you trying to hit it he goes shit I couldn't hit that deer again to save my life it's like hell no but when you go to like if you're chucking rocks I would say that or or whatever I got a video where I was throwing cow turds you just have to be expect you know it's it's kind of a last resort in some way like you talked about the video camera wind might be starting to switch right. or whatever more than most likely it's probably not going to pan out for you um, but it can, I've had good luck with it, but I've also blown a lot of, of deer out. And if you're physically drained or there's not that many deer where you're at, you're probably better off to, to not, not be chucking anything off the hillside.
2: Yeah. It, that's kind of reserved for a higher opportunity kind of a hunt where, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not going a week and getting one or two opportunities, but you're, you know, getting them on a daily basis. Cause it's, it definitely can bite you in the butt. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we've been on hour and 20 minutes. You got anything else you want to cover?
2: Um w- just jumping back to uh one thing uh, when um when Frank was commenting about the uh 100 yards, you know, drop the pack and and boots and all that. Um that <laughs> Some sometimes you need to drop it further out, and uh, and it's just I just don't want people that are starting out to go, okay, I'm 100 yards now, I drop it when you kind of got to read the terrain. And there are times like, uh, you know, when the cover's more open, um, or it's noisier, or when, um, you know, you maybe that deer is bedded and there's just some brush between you and it, but there's not a solid barrier that's going to help block noise. Like, I try to um where we're where we hunt mule deer most of the time they're bedding behind some rim rock or something you've got a solid wall there that's going to help buffer any noise so you can get into that 100 yards easily but if you are in um in terrain that's noisier you might have to drop your pack 200 yards in your boots and then go to socks then Rather than uh you know have that luxury of only having to cover the last hundred yards, at some of that country, particularly like Arizona and stuff, it man that is just so dang noisy down there. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, the same where we're at's at, the same terrain, but I think though, like uh for like basic numbers, like from like forty, you got to be super sneaky. A hundred, you know, whatever, but one thing I'm thinking of specifically with what you're talking about is when you get those bucks in buck brush and there's nothing around them, but what they're bedded right. in, you might also be looking for your pack for a while. You need to, I mean, I'm only adding this in cause I've lost my shit before when you drop your pack and it's um, two, 300 yards away, you might want to mark that thing on on X or, or flag some shit. Cause um, you may not, it seem at the, at the time, like you probably remember where it is, but, after the adrenaline rush or whatever else, make sure you mark it because there's a high probability you'll probably forget your own name after the, you know your stock of a lifetime. Because sometimes it is farther. Um, have you forgot yours? It's the worst. Well, the worst
3: thing <laughs> is, is trying to find your boots. It's not. <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that's
2: worse than trying to find your pack. Yeah, I'll generally, when I take my boots off, I'll take my blunts out of my quiver, my, you know, my practice points, and then I'll stick them straight up, you know, in the, yeah, in my boots up. there, yeah, fletching up there, and I've got pretty bright fletchings, I can see them for a ways.
0: Yeah, I, I I you know, just you going back to all the things you've done right and wrong, um, you know, sometimes for me, it's just a matter of maybe a mobility, so it may not be they'll hear me pull the pack off, but it's just easier to not have a pack on, and that big uh, S drainage um. You know, looking across by where I shot the three three by three, mm-hmm. Uh, I hit this S, S drainage, and actually Wes was on the other side watching me. When I hit it, it was just convenient. There's this big drainage to drop my pack to come back to it because I had a pretty technical stock. I look for my pack in a in in a when I say a drainage, it's what as wide as this. Mm-hmm. Pretty hard to not find your pack. It turned out being pretty hard to find my pack. Uh-huh. I, it was in so. I literally, after looking for like 20 minutes, I glass back at Wes. He's a mile away. And I can see him stand up and go walk downhill doing this. And I'm like, it's below me. So I walk like 100 yards down. I still don't see my pack. And I look up, Wes does it again. Uh I was way, and you know, I'm technically an expert. That doesn't mean shit. (laughs) Like, I I literally was 250 yards above my pack where I first hit it to find it. I didn't, I would have found it, obviously. I mean, a little bit of effort walking up and down it. But let's rewind that. Fog comes in, rain yep. comes in, storm comes in. You're cold, you're wet, you're hungry. There's no light. It gets dark. Shit, I could, at least I could see Wes add all those things. It doesn't mean you're not going to find your pack, but you're certainly not going to be real happy on your way back to, you know, base camp or whatever. So try to be smart about that, not just on killing the animal, but also not getting yourself into to trouble. That deer that I, we were just talking about I shot a few feet away, I lost my boots twice on that stock. You've lost yours overnight once, haven't you? Yeah yeah it happens
2: yeah yeah and i I mean you don't think it's gonna happen, but fog uh, you know just like losing your stuff, but particularly when you when you factor fog in, like I've lost my camp and couldn't find my way back to camp and and I uh, used onex and it didn't have it marked, but just I had no idea where I was in this basin, I was so disoriented because of the fog, so. You know, I used the, you know, the, the locator of, you know, the pin showing me or the dot showing me where I was. And then I, you know, was like, okay, I know where my camp is, even though I didn't have it marked, but the fog can be totally disorienting and you don't often get the chance of, or the opportunity to plan for it. But, you know, marking your, your stuff on, on your GPS, whether it be your pack when you left it, your boots, when you left it or your camp and because uh, you might be coming in back in, you know, in the dark to find it, um, even if it's, you know, a stock early in the morning, sometimes those, particularly if you're chasing elk, a lot of times those things will drag you way further than what you had intended or wanted. And um, I had a, I, it's a funny, kind of a funny story, and this predates probably even GPSs. Um, my friend Lon Lobber is telling me a story about hunting up there in Alaska, sheep hunting, and uh, he had... You know, taken off from his camp, glassing. And uh, and then during the time he was out, the fog rolled in and he it was pea soup. He couldn't see anything. And he said uh, it got dark on him and he spent, you know, hours and hours wandering around the top of this um, mountain trying to find his tent. And uh, finally, just decided, screw it. Sat down, had uh, didn't have a stove with him, had a freeze dried with him, though. So he just kind of tried to rehydrate it. So he's eaten Cold, crunchy, freeze-dried food. Sticks his uh, his feet into a marmot hole and sat there and shivered all night. And then uh, next morning, the sun comes up, and uh, he's fifty yards from his tent. <laughs> that
0: that nearly happened to John Pinch and I on uh, Mount Baker on a goat hunt, uh, fog. So yeah. we crossed a glacier, went on this stock, fog comes in, and we're on a big plateau. I mean, it like you couldn't not find this plateau. Just go up. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't mean you're going to walk into your tent. So, as you people know, if you ever walked in fog, the headlamp actually hurts, right? It's shining yeah. off the fog. So, I've got this badass, um, what the hell's that one A zebra headlamp? Like, I think it was like 2000 or two, 2000 lumen. Yeah. I, it didn't matter, right? So, we're walking around. All, we cross this glacier, make this huge climb. We're on the sand. I'm like home free. I can eat now. So like, I don't know, 30 minutes into wandering in circles, I, I'm like, John, did you mark it? He's like, no, I thought we'd find it. So we, it probably took an hour and a half to find it. The only way I found it is I I caught a glimpse of the guy outline that was uh-huh. reflective. The next morning, literally there's tracks circling our camp and we're not, because it, it's just two little tents. Yeah And uh, that would have been bad because it snowed that night, oh, like it would have been rough. And so. The, marking your camp some way, whether it's on, you know, Onyx or your GPS or even your watch, at least you can, at le, you know, get close, you know, coming back because, you know, my like navigation, I could have plotted out a 10 digit grid to know exactly where I was. It didn't matter. I didn't know where the fucking camp was. Right. So, yeah, I know where I am and I'm still lost because I, I didn't have that camp mark. So marking that is a huge one. And I've definitely started marking my pack. Um when I'm solo and going on a longer stock, yep. a little more often than I used to, cause, probably because I've lost my pack more than I, when I say lost, I've misplaced it for an hour and a half or two hours. Right.
2: And that, man, there's nothing, when you come dragging your butt back up the mountain from, you know, a thousand or 1500 foot. Drop in elevation, you get back up to your pack or where you thought your pack was, and all you want to do is get a drink and something to eat, and then you have to spend another, you know, hour or something looking for it. Or almost even worse, you leave your, you know, your boots and you think you know where they're at, and then you're wandering around in your already tender feet trying to find your boots, and just walking in your socks. That's that's miserable. Yeah, yeah, those are the things,
0: though, like you were talking about going on multiple stocks. Yeah those are things that will help you remember, you know, doing it. Cause until you screw that up, you really, we can say it, but until you're wandering around like an idiot for an hour, looking for your shoes, it really doesn't click in as well. It's kind of like touching the hot stove. Yeah. Until you touch it, you really don't know it's hot for, for sure. So yeah. Anyhow, well, cool. Well, it's been an hour and a half. We should probably hop on the mic. I get to go home and pack some more. So you guys got anything to add? No. Well, South appreciate everything. Hopefully we get to hunt elk again. Um,
2: Yeah. I'm crossing my fingers. I didn't get my goat tag. Didn't get my sheep tag. Didn't get my moose tag. So (laughs) (laughs) I know what I'm not hunting this year. Yeah.
0: No, no kidding. So cool. Well, hopefully, hopefully that'll pan out. And then, um, yeah, other than that, man, appreciate the support. Check out, uh, stalkerstickbows.com. Yep. And, uh, yeah, you have a plethora of things to look at. So a bunch of different options on there. So all right, everybody take it easy.